0: Hello, I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between big tech monopolies and large incumbents. Where is this all going to net out? So today we're going to talk about Disney and the streaming wars. Things are starting to heat up. Uh, Bob Iger is leaving the board of Apple. Um, We have some some big tech, not platform companies, uh, but SoFi is taking the naming rights or a football stadium. Okay, it's interesting. Um, And let's, of course, spend some time looking at antitrust regulation. There's some news about Amazon. There's some news about uh, Uber and other gig economy companies in California. And we're going to dig into what's going on there. So first looking at Disney here. So uh, Bob Iker just resigned from Apple's board of directors. He'd been on their board for uh, eight years. It was his only other board seat, interestingly enough. Um and the reason why well Disney has this thing called Disney Plus and Apple has this thing called Apple Plus is there a linkage there? <laughs> Maybe if you remember uh the last time there was a conflict of interest it was also from Apple where Eric Schmidt resigned from Apple's board I think in 2009 and uh that was over <laughs> the iPhone and Android, so I don't think that um, these conflicts are as big as the smartphone smartphone wars. Uh, but certainly, the the dawn of the streaming wars is here, as evidenced by by Bob's resignation. Uh, further to that point, I don't know who this guy, but he sure looks confused. Um, you can see now here. Here are the latest participants. In the streaming wars, you've got Netflix, Hulu, CBS, and CBS and Viacom are merging. Apple Plus, Prime from Amazon, HBO, that's part of AT&T, Disney Plus, and then Peacock. So Peacock was just announced this week. That is Comcast uh, streaming. I'm not going to call it a platform, although they... All call them platforms. So it's their streaming service, and that's slated to come out, I think, in the spring of 2020. Um, now, the other thing to note here is that Disney is the majority shareholder of Hulu. AT and T sold some of their stake um, to Disney for Hulu. It was actually a sweetheart deal, and um, so. But the point is here: there are five to ten major players. Uh, you may have heard that Netflix is gobbling up, you know, Netflix lost the office um, and now the office friends and these kinds of hallmark sitcom shows are being gobbled up for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And this all goes back to the point that none of these things are platform businesses. They don't have any supply side network effect. If they had a supply side network effect, you would never see six or seven major players in a given industry. Just, It just doesn't work that way because the supply is only going to attach itself to one or two of the most dominant distribution channels, i.e. the most dominant platforms, as you see with YouTube or you see with Twitch um, or, you know, fill in your blank, your respective content platform. um, There are only one or two dominant winners, right? So um, this is why you see that Netflix does not have anywhere near the level of defensibility Uh, that a content platform like YouTube, like Twitter, like Twitch, uh, has Instagram. And now, does that mean that Netflix's business is going to be ruined? No, it just means that Netflix is, is, is going to continue to have to spend tremendous amounts of money on content, that this battle is really just getting started, and that Netflix's competition is only heating up. Whereas if you had a platform that was as old as Netflix would be, they would now be moving into profit maximizing stage, right? They would now be moving into the stage where they have such a commanding role in that industry that they can now focus on generating profits. Not the same story for a linear business like Netflix and all these streaming services. Okay, the battle continues. Um, This is interesting. If you've heard of SoFi, SoFi really made its name uh, providing, it's a FinTech lender. What does that mean? Um, FinTech is basically like startup tech companies in financial services. Um, They've raised $2.5 billion, a lot of money. It's not clear to me how much of that 2.5 billion is equity versus debt, right? Because they need to lend money out. They really made their name lending money for student loans, but now they do um, a variety of, of, uh, of lending. They just bought the rights to the Rams and Chargers football stadium in L.A. Anyone want to guess how much money they spent for this? $400 million. <laughs> they just raised $500 million like a few weeks ago. And then they went around and put $400 million into the stadium. Granted, this is a 20-year deal. But... What you're seeing these fintech lenders do again, linear. Also, do things like this. This number used to be two percent interest that they would pay you. It went down by twenty basis points because the Fed uh, lowered their interest rate. So, um, but but these numbers are astronomical. One point eight percent. Wealthfront is doing the same thing. These are all linear fintech companies that are. Per- this isn't like a CD. You're not locking up this money. All you do is just put your money here, and they start paying you 1.8 percent on it on an annual basis. I mean, these are astronomically high, right? Any traditional bank is getting nowhere near this level of interest rate. Um, so, and and I think they they guarantee up to a million bucks, right? Kind of like federally insured um, in in the account, which which is also much higher. I think it's usually maybe a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars. So. Um, These fintech companies point here is they have a lot of money to burn. They are aggressively trying to acquire customers and they are really trying to penetrate the banks. Um, They haven't claimed victory yet, but, but this kind of stuff, if I'm a bank is very scary. Um, I mean, U S bank, they have the naming rights for the Vikings football stadium, right? I mean, it's big companies that buy, Naming rights on football stadiums. SoFi is trying to just make some big moves here and really um, really carve out some territory for themselves. So, yeah, I don't know. Is it an appropriate use of funds? Who knows? But um, $20 million a year, maybe, right? Um, maybe. Still linear, not platform, but still linear. And now doing a lot of things besides lending. So, uh, antitrust. So this article, usually the media gets this wrong, but I'll give credit where it's due. Uh, This article from Tim O'Reilly, I like Tim, um, he actually gets it right. And what he's saying is that we've been focusing antitrust regulation uh, in the wrong area. Does that sound familiar? Oh, maybe something you've heard on this show. And uh, basically what he says is if you... Um, if you look at who actually can be disadvantaged by the platforms, it's actually done on the producer side. And, uh, let me find the specific language in here for you. Uh, here we go. So when it comes to antitrust, the question of market power must be answered by analyzing the effect of these marketplace designs on both buyers and sellers and how they change over time. How much of the value goes to the platform, how much to consumers, and how much to suppliers, what we call producers. The platforms have the power to take advantage of either side of their marketplace. Any abusive market power is likely to show up first on the supply side, as we've been saying. A dominant platform can squeeze its suppliers while continuing to pass along part of the benefit to consumers, but keeping more and more of it for themselves. Does that ring a bell? Over time, though consumers feel the bite, power over sellers ultimately translates into power over customers. As a platform owner favors its own offerings over those of its suppliers, choice is reduced, though it is only in the end game that consumer pricing, the typical measure of a monopoly, begins to be effective. Um, and this is where the one tweak I would make on what Tim is saying here is what regulators look at is uh, consumer pricing that word is really customer pricing. The, the, the law doesn't delineate between consumer, it's customer, right? And when you think of suppliers as customers, our producers as customers, and who is Amazon receiving money from? Sellers. Who is YouTube receiving money from? Content creators. You can go down the list, the platforms, uh, who is the uh, Apple paid 30% of a cut from? The app developers. You can absolutely establish the relationship that producers, suppliers are customers, and therefore prices are being raised on the customer. And that violates antitrust law. And then it doesn't mean break these things up. What it does mean is to provide company specific regulation. So, tech monopoly, individual tech monopoly regulation that we empower our regulators to provide rules in two areas. One is um, transparency on matchmaking, which I'm going to get to that in a second. And two is providing recourse for producers and suppliers that feel that they were judged or um, taken advantage of by the platform. You know, I was kicked off the platform for the wrong reasons. I want to refute that. Um, The platform is uh, shadow banning me. I need to, you know, um, uh, provide evidence of this. It's not fair. The platform should be fined. Um, There is no independent uh, arbiter that producers that feel disadvantaged can go to currently. And the FTC and the existing regulators could absolutely help support that. So to this extent, um, Amazon is being probed by the FTC over its marketplace and how it is interacting with sellers. Okay. Um, Has begun interviewing small businesses that sell products on Amazon to to determine whether the e-commerce giant is using its market power to hurt competition. Um, They're doing 90 minute phone calls. They're calling up different sellers. All were asked what percentage of revenue their businesses derive from Amazon versus other online marketplaces like Walmart, eBay, et cetera. One seller was surprised the FTC returned his call the very next day. Okay, third-party sellers on Amazon. You guys watching the show? Go contact the FTC. This is who you should be talking to because they're looking at this right now. And this has teeth to it. The privacy stuff, as I've talked about, no teeth. Maybe you settle with them, you get some money. This has teeth in the sense of actually pr- providing regulation that can help promote more competition, not trying to break up these companies, but provide regulation that helps promote competition and competition is a good thing. So what this article is saying is that Amazon changed its search al- algorithm in ways that boost its own products. So those two things of where, regu- <coughs> where <laughs> regulation should focus, this was point number one. Um, so Amazon is absolutely Google does the same thing. All of the big tech monopolies do this. They favor their own linear, either um, websites, if you're Google um, content, if you're YouTube um, products, if you're Amazon, Amazon changed the search algorithms in ways that boosts its own products. Um, It overcame internal dissent from engineers and lawyers. People say familiar with the move. So Amazon has adjusted its product search system to more prominently feature listings that are more profitable for the company, said people who worked on the project. A move contested internally that could favor Amazon's own brands. Late last year, these people said Amazon optimized the secret algorithm that ranks listings so that instead of showing customers mainly the most relevant and best-selling listings, instead, it showed them, gives a boost to items that are more profitable for the company. So what does this say? When, when I say we want transparency on matchmaking, when the FTC needs to set up a system that lets them independently spot check when changes are happening to the algorithm, and then the platform needs to have uh, a, a, the onus to have to disclose, at least to the regulators, not necessarily publicly, but at least to the regulators, when they are changing their algorithm um, and what they're changing in it whether or not they actually expose the actual code in the algorithm and that sensitive ip i'm less concerned with that the point is what it's very easy to actually it's like the it's like the the fed the federal reserve right you have a basket of products and then you want to track inflation and then you track that basket of products on a regular basis and you see does that price go up or down for that basket of products you can do the same thing on Amazon. You can do the same thing on Google search. Now, Amazon and Google don't need to know what search terms or what products you're tracking and that and that the regulators are now tracking how these products are ranking. And then boom, if these products suddenly drop or their ranking or positionings drastically change and Amazon and Google haven't said to the regulator, oh, we changed our algorithm. Okay, maybe there's some funny business going on here, right? Um, That is a super dumbed down example about how regulators could be bringing uh, a closer eye to these matchmaking changes that have huge implications for producers. Um, And so you need to bring transparency into that. You need to have a process that if you're a big tech monopoly, that if you want to make a change that you are providing transparency to the regulators, you give them time to ask questions and get more context. Um, and then the regulators can figure out whether or not you're doing that inappropriately. Why? To measure if you're doing it inappropriately and stifling what? Competition. It's fair. And absolutely, these big tech monopolies, one of the reasons why they've continued to be able to just make up how much their earnings are every quarter is because they just change the algorithm and they know if I change the algorithm, I'm going to get you know another 20% earning per share in this quarter pretty great. Not so good for the suppliers and the producers. Okay. Now on the other end of the spectrum, you've got California, which is completely off the deep end. It's like it's like the federal government doesn't do anything. And then the states go bonkers, especially California. So um, we talked about on the last show that California passed this legislation uh, to classify um, gig economy workers as employees. Does this solve the two biggest gripes of gig economy workers? No, it doesn't. It just increased the costs to the platform, A, and B, it increased the money the state of California receives from platforms. I wonder if there's a bias. Okay. Um, so Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash pledged $90 million to fight this. And interesting, on the last show, what I was talking about is what is really needed is um, a uh, a separate class of worker. So um, that means we have contractors and you have employees. What we need is something in between, which are gig economy workers. And there's a whole host of reasons why that is. Um, but one example of this is now the trucking industry is saying, hey, this legislation you just passed, that might actually... Um, consider truckers who are contractors to also now be employees. And that would be, but by the way, disastrous for the trucking industry in California. Um, So they're raising the alarm here. And so what, what Uber, Lyft and DoorDash are doing um, are trying to create a ballot initiative. So this will go directly onto the ballot um, for California voters who can vote to create? Um, who who can vote to create their own class of worker for the gig economy? Honestly, this is the thing that has needed to be done. Um, I just thought it would never get done because there's decades and decades of precedent around um, uh, labor law for you know contractors and employees, and it's just such a stark. Um, it's such a big move to go into a now completely new class of labor, but it's actually the solution that has been needed um, because you have, so if you think about just contractors and employees, historically rewind the clock, like 20, 30 years ago. Okay. I would have a trucker. I would have a plumber. I would have, you know, uh, people doing like modeling or acting, right? Technically all those people are contractors. Um, A lot of them are probably working, you know they're they're doing that job full time, right? And then employees are also doing things full time, and you um, have you know are working in an office, <coughs> um, and the the company just has much more control over how they do what they do. An independent contractor is supposed to be independent and doing their own thing. Now these um, gig economy workers driving for Uber, doing deliveries on DoorDash, you're in the middle. The platform is giving you business. The platform is telling you where to go and what job to do. Um, But you are doing this on your own volition. You are um, acting independently. You um, could be doing this for 10 hours a week. It's all incremental income, right? A lot of these things are very different than the traditional definition of contractor and certainly the traditional definition of employee. The whole employee thing is so far afield. Um, But anyway, so if they create a new class of... Labor here, which is what this what this uh, vote would be on, um, that is really powerful, and that could ultimately, hopefully, be adopted by other states um, and and really start a uh, a renaissance. And it's actually put a lot of it's actually put multiple other gig economy startups out of business because um, they were sued. Many of them by ex workers saying that hey, I was supposed to be classified as an employee. Um, Only the larger tech monopolies and platforms—well, they're not monopoly status yet—but only the larger tech platforms had enough capital that they could actually settle a lot of these lawsuits. Some of them turned into class action lawsuits, Um, and so it really became a a big issue. So um, this would be this would be great. Um, This would really. I think, provide the best solution. Now, the irony here is a a separate class of worker, I still don't think is actually going to solve the two biggest gripes of gig economy workers. And what are those? Number one, um, when is the platform going to change its take rate? And, oh, you were taking 20%, now you're taking 25% if there's only one or two players, what am I going to do? Again, I don't really have any recourse. Second one is I'm getting kicked off the platform or the platform is penalizing me and the customer complained, but the customer is wrong or the, the platform isn't looking at all the information. And my livelihood is at stake here. Um, would a separate class of, um, you know, of, of gig economy worker solve that. There isn't too much information on this. Yet we'll continue to follow it, but I highly doubt that if Uber, Lyft and DoorDash are um, bringing this, uh, this vote to, to the cal- to the state of California, that they're going to put uh, limits regulating how they can increase their take rate or not. Um, maybe there's more provisions on the second issue around how platforms would, would regulate or police or, you know, penalize producers. Um, but uh I hope something like this works. I really do think it would be uh, the best thing for the industry. And then it would let these truckers not be too concerned um, about being classified as employees. And And I'm sure this is just one industry about there are many industries here where um, you're still working with a company or closely to another company, right? If you think about a trucker getting a job from a shipper and, um, or that could be a three PL, these kind of like uh, logistics brokers. Um, so there's, there is a kind of closer working relationship in that environment than say you're a plumber. But even plumbers now um, on a handy on these service marketplaces have the same challenge. So um, it's a big issue and we'll see where this nets out. So uh, that's it for us today on winner take all. Thanks for joining us and I'll talk to you tomorrow.